looking at God's basic commands to children and to parents. You remember, it's really quite simple. God doesn't make it very complicated. In Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 3, he gives two simple commands to the children. Obey and honor. Obey simply means to willingly comply with the authoritative directives of your parents. To do what they say, when they say it, without grumbling and complaining, without arguing, without questioning, and without delay. That's the command. That's the directive. Unless, of course, they're calling you to sin in some form or fashion. But other than that, you have an obligation, a responsibility as a child to comply with your parents' directives. Again, they are God's delegated authority in your life. God is mediating his authority to you through your parents. You need to recognize that and respond to that as he calls you to by obeying. First, because it's right. And then second, he says, not only are you to obey, which deals with the action, but he says you're to honor them, which deals with the attitude. You're to have a respect and a reverence for them because they are God's delegated representative in your life. And then he gives the reasons why you're to honor them. He gives two reasons, so that it may be well with you. That deals with quality of life. And then he says, so that you may live long. That deals with quantity of life, so that your life is not unnecessarily cut short because of sin in your life and disobedience and the consequences that go along with that. So those were God's basic commands to the children. And then if you remember last week, we began to look at God's basic commands to the parents. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 so that you can see this. Ephesians chapter 6. And if you remember, we saw that, again, he makes it quite simple for the parents as well. Parenting is not very complicated. It may be a challenge. It may be hard work, but it's not real complicated. He gives two simple commands. Remember, we said there's one is the negative prohibition. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And then the other was the positive prescription. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you remember last time, we spent all of our time looking at that first one, that negative prohibition. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We said last time that to provoke your children to anger really suggests a repeated ongoing pattern of behavior toward them that causes a deep-seated anger and resentment to build up in their hearts and ultimately to boil over in their lives, manifesting itself in outward hostility or perhaps the point where you exasperate them, where they lose heart and they lose hope and they just have no reason to even try. That's kind of the parallel you see in Colossians 3, 21, I believe it is. And then we looked, if you remember, at a whole host of ways that parents have a tendency to provoke their children to anger so that we're aware of them and so that we can avoid them. Well, now this morning, we turn to the second half of Ephesians 6, 4, which is the positive prescription, the command here. Before I get to the command, let me just say that it, it, it's... Obviously, again, that he puts this responsibility upon the fathers as the head of the household. Certainly, mothers have a responsibility and an important role in responsibility. But ultimately, the father is going to be the one bearing uh, the accountability for this role of raising and bringing up the children. And I've said this before, but it's just a sobering reality. Certainly parenting is a joy. It's a privilege. It's a a great, 
you know, blessing from the Lord as he talks about in Scripture. And yet at the same time, it's a solemn and sober responsibility because every time you bring a child into this world, you've just brought a soul into this world that will live on forever, either in heaven or in hell. And as we know, children are not born morally neutral, are they? They're born in a state of sin, a state of moral corruption, a state of total depravity. And so we have a responsibility to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. To model the truth of the gospel for them and to constantly and continually teach it to them. And to instruct them and then to discipline them. And so, as I've said before... Having children is easier. Becoming a father is easy. It happens in a moment of passion. Being a father is a lifetime of hard work, of diligence, of discipline, of dependence upon the Lord. And notice the responsibility here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but what? Bring them up is what he says. Bring them up. This term here basically means to rear, to bring to maturity, to provide support. Here in Ephesians 6.4, it would convey tenderly caring for the child by providing what the child needs to grow to maturity. And namely, in the context, what the child needs here are discipline and instruction, the writer says. And so it's not just concerned with bringing them up physically and providing for their needs physically, certainly that's included in this, but it's obviously a lot more than that as well. There's spiritual training that needs to go on. There's mental training that needs to go on. And notice that this verb is what we call a present active imperative in the Greek text. Who can tell me the significance of that? Why is that important? Why does that matter? What does that mean? Let's work through each of those. It's a present tense, it's an active voice, and it's an imperative mood. So what does the present tense indicate? So this is a continuing action. Whatever we're being called to do, we're being called to do continually. What does the active voice denote? You have a responsibility to actively do something as a volitional act of your will. And what does the imperative mood indicate? It's a command. So let's just look at each of those and let's just think about the implications of them then. Notice first, it's in the active voice. You parents bring them up. It's not passive. It's not the passive voice. If it was the passive voice, it would mean you children be brought up. Be brought up by the environment around you. Be brought up by your Sunday school teachers. Be brought up by your your school teachers. Be brought up by your grandparents. It's, It's not the passive voice. Notice also, it's not the middle voice. If it was the middle voice, it would be, you children, bring yourselves up. Train yourselves, discipline yourselves, instruct yourselves. Bring yourself to a state of maturity. But he doesn't say that, does he? No, it's an active voice here. You parents, be proactive and intentional about bringing your, parent, your children up. Again, as one writer says, children are not self-rising flower. They need the yeast of parental instruction to grow up properly. Children naturally follow the foolishness in their hearts. Therefore, parents are pumps pushing the water uphill, reversing the child's natural, sinful, foolish inclinations. 
We've seen very clearly, right, that the Bible doesn't teach that the child is morally neutral, that any aspect of his desire is to, that any aspect of his desire to please himself or rule himself is morally neutral. He's sinful. It takes work, therefore, in the part of the parent to bring them up, to reverse that aspect of the curse and to teach them the truth of God's word. And so there's no place in Christian thinking for a passive parent. A passive parent lacks wisdom, fails to study God's word, and fails to do what God's called him to do. We become passive because of our own sin and wrong thinking. We don't want to put forth the effort. We're lazy. We're too busy with other things, trying to get ahead in our career, with our own hobbies, our own ministries, whatever it might be. With a refusal to believe the facts. Oh, my child could never do something like that. And after all, we're a Christian family. Many times this is seen in Sunday school or in the Christian school. The Sunday school workers have to deal with this child and the parents refuse to believe that their child could do something like that. We think, oh, they're too young to learn at this stage. But when they get a little bit older, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll pour into them. Folks, don't be deceived. Success in one area of life, perhaps business, does not guarantee success in parenting. David was a king, a man after God's own heart, and yet he's a sad example of being a passive, preoccupied father. And the results were devastating, right, of his passivity, of his failure to actively lead. You see that with his sons, Absalom and and others. 1 Kings 1 talks about David did not oppose Adonijah. He just allowed his children to continue in their rebellion without ever addressing it and confronting it. He was a passive, preoccupied parent, and we don't want that to be the case with us. We must actively pursue the task of bringing up our children. And again, notice he addresses fathers. that This is your primary responsibility, Dad. Not saying that a mother's role isn't crucial, that a mother's role isn't important, that a mother isn't to be actively involved. She is. I mean, Proverbs 1.8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Proverbs 6.20 says, My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. And Proverbs 31 talks about the woman. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. 2 Timothy 1 gives a great example. For I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that is in you as well. Obviously, he thought it was important to talk about that generational faithfulness of his grandmother and then his mother, who obviously modeled the truth for him and were faithful to pour it into him and to, 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 to be involved in his life, actively involved. Titus 2 talks about the role of women to love their children. And obviously that's more than just showing sentimentality to them. It's sacrificially serving them to meet their needs, the, the need of bringing them up, of rearing them. So we're not denying the mother's role. She certainly has a, a role and responsibility, an important role and responsibility, because the fact of the matter is that the mom's probably going to spend far more time with the kids than the dad is. The dad's going to be out working to provide for the family most of the time. But dads, that's not an excuse for laziness or neglect. See, dads are, tend to neglect their duty. Dads tend to abdicate their role. 
And yet dads are directly accountable to God due to his structure of headship in the home. Dads tend to think that their work is over when they arrive at home. Had a long day at work. I just want to come home and relax. I want to pick up the newspaper. I want to sit back on the couch and watch some television. I want to eat my dinner. I want the kids to go to bed so I can have a peaceful evening. Some dads need a reminder over the door when they come home. You're now entering the mission field. In some senses, your work of parenting is just starting for the day. And yet most of us as parents don't want to have to think that. (laughs) In addition to being active, notice that bring up here is in the present tense. It's not just in the active voice, but it's also the present tense, which conveys continual ongoing action. Be continuously bringing them up. Keep at it. Don't ever stop. Don't ever take a break. Don't ever take a vacation. Parenting is work. It's constant and continual work. If we do it continually, it's manageable work. If we procrastinate, if we're neglectful, if we're haphazard, if we wait until later when we're ready or when we think our child is ready, the sheer number of issues that need to be addressed will be overwhelming. And it will be virtually unmanageable. For example, John MacArthur says in his syllabus here on Parenting for Life, the first day of kindergarten is a good example. Some children can't tie their shoes, open their lunchbox, use the bathroom without help, print their name neatly on the line, answer the teacher when he or she speaks to them, find something to do at recess or sit still in class. All of this could have been taught little by little at home. Now the teacher has all the work to do. Stanley's smiling. He can relate. A more tragic example is the parent who's concerned about the peer pressure his junior high student faces, yet who has not been faithfully instructing his child through the years about the importance of fearing and trusting God and standing alone against sin. He's never instilled in your child that you stand with God, even if you have to stand alone. You stand uncompromisingly with God. Because those friends are not going to be with you on the day of judgment. It's just going to be you and God. Little by little, parents are either striving to be faithful instruments in God's hands, bringing up their children according to biblical principles like the model you see in Deuteronomy 6, constantly and continually instilling and inscribing the truth in their hearts, modeling it for them, teaching it to them, talking about it, proactively involved in the lives of their children and bringing them up, bringing them to a place of physical maturity as well as spiritual maturity, or they're neglecting this responsibility through passivity. I mean, just read Proverbs 24, 30 to 34, the field of the sluggard and what it looks like, who is passive and indifferent. He didn't do anything. And what happened? Thorns and thistles and weeds grew up. That's exactly what will happen metaphorically and spiritually in the life of your children through neglect and passivity. All kinds of weeds and spiritual issues and problems will start to sprout and the roots will go deep and the roots will be difficult to deal with later on. So he says, bring them up. It's active, it's continuous, and finally... Well, notice, that, again, it's continual. There's no holidays. There's no slacking in this job. MacArthur says God himself has given the responsibility for raising children to parents, not to school teachers, not to peers, not to child care workers or other people outside the family or inside the family, such as grandparents. It's the responsibility of the fathers. And obviously the mother's under the father's leadership. 
And then finally, again, it's not just active, it's not just continual, but notice that it's an imperative, it's a command, it's not a choice. This is not a friendly advice or suggestion. If you'd like to, if you think this is a good idea, you think this is something you'd want to do, if psychology books agree that parents should, if your grandparents agree, if your parents agree, if it's convenient or easy, the so-called experts say so. God commands parents to bring up their children. He gives them the authority to do this, and he expects them to do this, and he holds them responsible and accountable for doing this. One day we're going to stand before God and give an account to how faithful we were to this command or unfaithful we were to this command. It's not an option to consider. It's a command to obey, a constant and continual duty and responsibility for every parent. A lot of parents don't think about these things when they're having children. And then all of a sudden they realize the role and responsibility and they think it's hard. Well, I don't want to do that. You don't have an option. You brought that child into the world. You're responsible for bringing that child up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's a present active imperative. Any questions or comments at this point? James. The father most of the time, whether old days or new days, they're always out working. The father says the woman is a helper. And she's the one who has more influence on the child because she spends more time with the child. Um, The father do have a lot of responsibility as the head of the house. But how much time does he really have when the wife is at home and she got all the time in her hand to raise the children? Uh, how would you say that um, the mother is telling the children um, to do this and they say, why did I do that? I want to talk to daddy. Yeah, you better see your dad. Your dad said do this. Don't, don't put it on me. Put it on dad. You know, so you'll answer to dad. And the, the father gives the wife instruction because he's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Adam tell Eve, she was not even there. He said, the day God said this and God said that about that tree, the day you eat, she surely die. She wasn't even there yet. So the wife has a great role in helping the husband to raise his children. That, that, that does not take away, I believe, the authority and responsibility of the father to check on them. No, I, I think that's part of the way the father would raise the, the children is through the, the mediation of the wife. So obviously he has a role and responsibility to make sure that he carves out time with those children and make sure it's quality time because obviously it's going to be less time than the, the wife has because he is out working most of the time. And secondly, he has a responsibility of, again, instructing his wife in that process so that they're unified and that... It, there is no dissonance where a child wouldn't say, well, mommy won't let me do this. I'm going to go ask daddy where they know whatever mommy says, daddy says too. And whatever daddy says, mommy says too. There's a unified front and that the husband is being proactive and intentional to talk to his wife about, hey, what are you going to do with our child today? Here's some things I've been noticing in the child's life. Here's some areas where I think we need to, uh, you know, direct some attention. I want you to, you know, for this week to spend time doing this and we'll catch up at night and we'll talk about how it's going and then we'll meet together as a family and talk about it or whatever it is. And that's part of the instruction as well of instructing his wife in carrying out some of his discipline and some of his instruction. Of he, he, She doesn't have to wait till the father gets home to discipline that child. 
You know, she, she can carry out that discipline as well, and she can carry out that instruction throughout the course of the day, whether it's just, uh, you know, in the physical, natural realm of instructing the child with school stuff or just uh, manners or, or, or anything, social, you know, um, manners and stuff like that, or whether it's actually the Bible and teaching them truth from Scripture, he would have a responsibility of taking the lead in that. So certainly he has a responsibility to spend direct time with his children, which he should be proactive and intentional in doing, as well as working closely with his wife in a unified parenting strategy to ensure that when he's not there, the children are still being instructed and disciplined in the Lord. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. In in days gone by, before Christ came, most of the mothers, you wonder, uh, how did they learn? They all had to go to the synagogue to learn. And so they, they learned the scripture. And then, yeah, they were to help because the man had to go to work from, what, 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening. How much time does he have left at home? Leaving the dark, coming to the dark. And so, again, parents have a great responsibility to raise children, to bring them up. Proverbs 29.15 says that a child left to himself will bring his mother to shame. If you remember, I, I read a quote a while ago. I thought this was fascinating. By the Minnesota Crime Commission wrote this. As far as I know, it's a secular writing. It says, quote, every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's affection, his playmates' toys or whatever. Deny him these, and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which could be murderous, were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist, end quote. I think that's spot on. You want to raise a rebel? Then just do nothing. Don't raise them. Let them do their own thing. And that's exactly what you'll have on your hands. And so again, fathers have a role and a responsibility, not just to not provoke their children to anger, but to proactively and intentionally bring them up. And notice, not just to bring them up to physical maturity, taking care of their needs, teaching them social skills and things like that, but more importantly, what does he say here? Bring them up in what? The discipline and instruction of the Lord that comes from the Lord and is ultimately about the Lord. And so this is spiritual in nature. It's not just secular, teaching them social skills and teaching them uh, trade skills and so that they can function well and flourish in society. If that's all you do as a parent, then you fail to do your job. Yeah, you might raise a child who becomes a millionaire and who has great success in this world, but if you didn't teach them about the Lord and the discipline and instruction of the Lord, you failed in your duty. Not just about teaching them social skills and trade skills so that they can flourish in this world. And sadly, that's the gospel that many are preaching today, a social gospel where the emphasis is really we just have to worry about human flourishing. We want to eradicate poverty. We want to eradicate illiteracy. 
They want to give everybody a better quality of life. That's not the gospel. Certainly we'd love to do those things, but that's not the gospel and that's not the role of the church. The the role of the church is to preach the gospel and to teach the word of God to people. It's not about social reform. So we just saw the essence of the command to bring them up. Notice now the execution of, the, of, the, of God's directions. That was the essence of God's directions. Now we see the execution of God's directions. Two key words in Ephesians 6.4 we must understand in order to fulfill God's directions are what? Discipline and instruction. First word discipline is the Greek word paideia. The word can be used in more than just one way in the Greek text. So really, context would determine its meaning. It's a general word, and it's explained under the general heading of training. Parents are to systematically train their children, and this would include the methods or tools used to fulfill the uh, the methods or tools used to fulfill the intent of this term. Include setting up rules and standards in the house, setting up certain guidelines, setting up certain restrictions, setting up certain rewards for faithfulness and obedience, bringing correction when they err from those rules and those guidelines, bringing physical, so that there would be verbal reproof and correction, and there would be physical reproof and correction when they err and they violate those rules, those guidelines, those restrictions, those structures that have been set up. And so uh, the word is, is a very comprehensive word. It basically speaks of, uh, systemat- again, systematic training. It's the word that speaks of full-orbed, comprehensive training and educating of a child, including the physical discipline and chastisement of the child. William Hendrickson writes, again, training by means of rules and regulations, rewards, and when necessary, punishments. You want a picture, go back to the first five books of the Old Testament. There's a very clear picture presented to us there. God lays down very clear rules for his people, very clear guidelines, very clear boundaries. He teaches them what he expects of them, and then he lays down corresponding rewards. If the laws are kept, here's the blessings that they will experience. Here's the rewards that will come. Here's the corresponding punishment and curses if they disobey, right? And then God was actually faithful to carry out both either on the reward for obedience and the punishment for disobedience. That's discipline here. That's what he's talking about. And so that means then, parents, that you and I must expect and demand what the first three verses of this chapter command our children to do. We must expect and demand that our children obey us. That is, that they do what we tell them to do without delay, without arguing or complaining, without making excuses, and that they do it joyfully with their whole heart. And that they honor and respect us in their heart, mind, attitudes, and body language while they're doing that. And if they don't, there should be consequences. And if they do, there should be uh, encouragements and rewards. That's discipline. Because again, when they disobey, they're sinning. And they should be disciplined and punished for that. And let me just say that when you don't discipline them... You're actually sinning against God by failing to fulfill your responsibility toward them to raise them in the discipline of the Lord. And so don't be a hypocrite and get angry with them when they disobey, when you turn right around and you disobey God by not disciplining them in turn. And then you expect them to do what you want them to do, but you never discipline them when they don't. 
You never teach them that there's consequences for their choices. There's consequences for their disobedience. Well, how else are they going to learn? That's your responsibility to train them, to teach them. That's what he's saying here with this word. And so this is the responsibility of the parent to bring them up first and foremost in the discipline of the Lord, full orb training of the children. This is basically, uh, Joel James calls it education with teeth in it. And again, there's two aspects of the discipline. First, there's verbal correction. Proverbs 29, 15 says the rod And reproof give wisdom. Reproof there is verbal correction. Proverbs 6.23 says reproofs for discipline are the way of life. So correction is verbally stopping and redirecting an erring child. For example, telling a toddler no when he's starting to do something wrong. Correction opposes the child's will, calling him back before he tumbles into sin. However, small children rarely give proper attention to verbal instruction. Therefore, there is also a legitimate, carefully controlled physical aspect to the godly discipline mentioned here in Ephesians 6.4. So not only verbal correction, but physical correction, what we call a spanking. Proverbs 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom. Obviously, the rod is dealing with physical correction. Reproof is dealing with verbal correction. And that produces wisdom in a child. How to skillfully apply the word of God to every area and aspect of life. If you want your children to have wisdom, to be able to see life from God's perspective, and to live in light of it, to know how to skillfully apply God's word to every area and aspect of life, one element of that is the rod and reproof, bringing verbal and physical correction to them. If your children are not wise, if they're foolish, if they're... Uh, a, a constant challenge to your heart? Well, you need to look at your own self and say, am I being faithful in this area of raising them in the discipline of the Lord? What does Proverbs thirteen twenty four say? He who withholds his rod, what? Hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Because spanking teaches children the important principle that disobedience hurts. It's costly, it's painful to disobey God and the delegated authorities that he set up in this world, be the parents being one of them. It hurts now, and if you ignore God, it will hurt even more in eternity. This is an important lesson that children need to learn early on. To say it another way, you're teaching your children that it's not safe to disobey, that there are consequences. Consequences are sure, and consequences can be severe if you persist in disobedience to God. You're basically teaching your children the principle of sowing and reaping. What what does Galatians 6 tell us there? Remember in Galatians 6, 7, Paul writing to the Galatians says, Do not be deceived. Now, why would he say that? Because we have a tendency to be deceived, don't we? Do not be deceived. So if I have a command to do not be deceived, then the assumption of the biblical writers, I probably have a tendency to be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You're not going to get, you're not going to mock God. You're not going to win against God. As one pastor as well said, your arms are too short to box with God. You're always going to lose. 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. It's an inviolable rule and principle that God has sown into the fabric of this universe called sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Don't be mocked. Uh, Don't be deceived. God's not going to be mocked. You're you're not going to violate that principle, that rule. You're not going to be the exception to that. And so you're teaching your children, hey, whatever you sow, you're going to reap. If you are disobedient, there's going to be consequences. And I want to be there to be faithful, to to meet out those consequences so that you understand that disobeying God is not appropriate. It's not acceptable. A practical outworking of a child's depravity is his naivety, Proverbs 1.4. Children lack understanding, Proverbs 7.7. Children are gullible, Proverbs 15.15. And many times they rush headlong into evil, Proverbs 22.3. They don't know how to use their time wisely. Thus, children need parents to bring them up, to train them how to live in a prudent manner. So to help train their children, it is necessary for parents, again, to develop house rules. Now, one set of rules, guidelines, and restrictions does not fit all families. And the Bible doesn't stipulate this in any real specific manner. So God gives parents his word to guide them. With the wisdom that comes from biblical principles, parents are to set up and adjust their house rules according to their conscience. It's in submission to this training that children need to learn obedience to authority. The response to... The response scripture outlines is the way that children please the Lord. Colossians 3.20. Discipline is not only for the purpose of shaping a child's behavior. It's also a, a way to shepherd a child's heart. It's also a means by which parents point a child to his need for Christ. When a child fails to live up to the standards which he's taught, it's an opportunity to explain to him the gospel and his need for a savior. And again, correction includes the use of the rod, obviously. It's not limited to that, but it certainly includes that. Though those who do not love God and his word say that using the rod is outdated or cruel, a Christian parent must be obedient in this area. We don't take our cues from the world, do we? We take our cues from the word of God. So do we just cut these verses out of the Bible? Of course God hates child abuse, so do Christian parents. But biblical correction does not relate to child abuse. Using the rod in a biblical, loving manner actually proves that you love your child. Isn't that what we just read in Proverbs 13, 24? He who withholds the rod, what? Spares the rod, hates his son. But he who loves him, what? Disciplines him diligently. And it's not just talking about verbal correction. It's talking about physical correction as well. Though many parents avoid this part of their responsibility, they must at times oppose their children. It's a conflict with the purpose. The biblical record points out even David, Eli, and other patriarchs failed here and the consequences were devastating. You might be tempted to abdicate this part of training your child because at times it proves to be an unpleasant experience. Some parents don't want the hassle and the resistance. Or perhaps they fear somehow harming their child's emotions or creativity or sensitivity. 
Oh, the psychologists say that this is going to damage them psychologically, so we don't want to do anything. Is that what the Bible says? (laughs) We're going to see what the Bible says in a minute. Parents may have even read surveys which try to connect spanking with tendencies towards violence in their children later on. Or maybe their own parents didn't use biblical chastisement. Maybe other parents have said it didn't work for them, so they're, they're prone to not do it. But to be a biblical parent, to do it God's way, we must be willing to trust God's word and to be obedient to him. Trusting him with the consequences of our obedience, not trying to be smarter than God or wiser than God, trying to figure out in our own finite fallen wisdom what we think will work and what we don't think will work. Certainly no parent enjoys the discipline aspect, do they? I don't enjoy spanking my children. It feels like it hurts me more than it hurts him every time I have to do it. But it's an issue of faithfulness. It's an issue of trusting God that this is wisest and this is best for my child. That this is God's prescribed means and God's infinite and impeccable and infallible wisdom. This is the prescribed means that he's come up with to bring my child to a state of maturity. Not just physical maturity, but hopefully spiritual maturity where he would come to know Christ and worship and serve Christ and be an ambassador, a faithful ambassador for Christ. And so part of this, again, is not just setting up guidelines and instructions and restrictions and meeting out rewards for obedience, but also meeting out punishment for disobedience, consequences for disobedience. And they include physical discipline. Ted Tripp writes, a young child does not give proper weight to words alone. His attention is secured when those words are punctuated by a sound spanking. What are typical excuses for not applying biblical discipline? Some say, well, well, there's a better way to get them to obey. Well, the response is disciplining, again, is a matter of obedience, not selecting from a smorgasbord of alternative options, right? Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And so our discipline of our children is ultimately to be modeled after God's discipline of us. You understand that? And so, again, we're not talking here about revenge out of anger because you you know, tarnished my reputation in front of other people, in front of other parents. You uh, disrupted my comfort or convenience. You're making me look bad in front of others. That's not what we're talking about here, where you're venting your sinful anger because of wrong reasons. Discipline is not revenge, it's instruction, and therefore it should never be done in anger. What we're talking about is loving, controlled, physical discipline rooted, one, in a genuine desire to honor God and to be faithful to Him, and two, in a genuine desire for your child's highest good and their ultimate well-being. And it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 8.5, Moses is talking to the children of Israel gathered on the plains outside of the promised land, ready to go in after 40 years of wilderness wandering. He says this to them in Deuteronomy 8.5, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God, and here's our word, was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his own son. God says, I disciplined you just as every father should discipline his child. God disciplines his children, and so we're patterning our discipline after God's discipline of us. 
2 Samuel 7, you have another example of that in the Davidic covenant, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, as we saw in Hebrews 1. But 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him. How? With the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart. There's the biblical balance, love and discipline. God himself does this. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we come to the rest of Scripture that we are commanded to do the same thing with our children, right? We're just patterning our parenting after God's really parenting of us, if you will. Uh, Uh, The question keeps coming up with a lot of people who ask, well, what age do you stop spanking the child? That's a question of judgment of is he old enough to understand, or is he not old enough to understand? Yeah. That's a, that's a question I always come about. What age do I stop spanking my child? Yeah. So we'll get into that in a little bit. <laughs> so again, th- there is no better way. This is, this is a matter of being obedient. God's plan for parents is modeled on the way that he himself disciplines his children. But what does Hebrews 12 teach us? It teaches us that same thing, doesn't it? Remember Hebrews 12? He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he what? Disciplines. Chastens. He he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, society would think the exact opposite. If you love them, you don't do that. And yet God says, no, if you love them, you do do that. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, But yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Folks, that's what we're looking for. Just like that, we want to discipline our children for their good so that they would share God's holiness, that they would know Christ savingly, and that they would become like Christ. And certainly no discipline is for for the moment is joyful, either for the parent giving it or for the child receiving it. But he says, but it's sorrowful. It's a grief both to the parent to have to do it and also for the child to have to receive it. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful root fruit of righteousness. So you're acting in faith saying that this is what God says results. And so I'm going to trust God. I'm going to be faithful. Even if it's grievous to my heart, even if it's difficult for me and my child, we're trusting God that this is wisest and best to bring about his desired ends. You understand that? And so when someone says there's a better way, there is no better way. This is God's way. God's infinite in his wisdom. He's impeccable. He's infallible. You're saying you know better than God how to raise and rear your children and bring them up? There is no better way. This is God's way. Some say, well, it's not loving. Well, again, what's the, what's the scriptural response to that? Well, it's very clear what the scriptural response is, isn't it? What do we read in Proverbs, again, 
3.12. For, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves. It just says, the, the ones he loves, he reproves. What does Proverbs 13.24 say? He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So the scripture says the exact opposite, that the most loving thing you can do is to discipline that child. To not discipline them is an evidence that you don't love them and that you actually hate them. You despise what's best for them and what's good for them. MacArthur says, one who has genuine affection for his child but withholds corporal punishment will produce the same kind of child as a parent who hates his offspring. Well, some say, well, look, it's just too cruel. Well, what's the scripture's response to that? Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. That's a command. Negatively, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, what? He will not die. You shall strike him with the rod. Now here's the positive command. And what? Rescue his soul for Sheol, from Sheol. Don't you want to rescue your child's soul from death and hell one day? To, to whatever degree you have. Obviously, you're not the ultimate savior, but God is. But he uses means in the process. And so there's the scripture's response right there. It's not too, too cruel. MacArthur speaks to the issue of equating abuse and discipline. They're not, they're not synonymous. Physical abuse and the type of physical discipline that the scripture calls for are not the same thing. Opponents of corporal punishment will often cite surveys and statistics that seem to support their findings, but precisely because they begin by equating brutal acts of violence against children with properly administrated corporal discipline, their results are skewed. Of course, cruel punishment and brute violence against children is wrong, counterproductive, and unbiblical. We all understand that. That's not what we're talking about here. A biblical spanking is actually merciful. The discipline is over quickly and love can be reaffirmed immediately. Jay Adams says the rod is a punishment quickly and mercifully inflicted. When given the privilege, we find that invariably a child chooses physical punishment over the prolonged tortures of forbidding privileges for, for, for days or weeks. Who says that the latter is more merciful? It is like stretching the child on the rack. And in addition, day after day, mom and dad have to retain a cool, negative attitude for, toward him. Is that really merciful? That's torture. It is much better to have him bend over, assume the position, and get swatted. There is no need to stay on the outs with the child for days or even hours. He screams and hollers, and then you take him into your arms. He has paid his penalty. It's over with. It's done. It's God's basic method of punishment, end quote. As to this prolonged manipulation, you, you, you upset me, and now you're going to feel it for the, the next week. I'm going to give you, you know, the cold treatment or the, the, the silent treatment or whatever it is. No, you address the issue. You do it firmly. You do it, you know, biblically. You do it lovingly. And we're, we'll talk about all of the practical ways of how to do that in, in a moment. Well, some say it's not worth the effort. And it's just not worth the effort. What does Scripture say? We just read in Hebrews 12, 14... All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It is worth the effort. According to God, Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof gives wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. 
So the question is, who are you going to believe? God or your own heart? Or what society is telling you or what others are telling you? It is worth it. You want a child who's trained in righteousness? You want a child who has wisdom? You want a child who gives you comfort and delight in your soul? Then don't spare the rod. Don't spare physical discipline. Proverbs 29, 15, this verse literally calls the rebellious child the one who is let loose. A child with no boundaries or restraints, who fears no painful biblical consequences, brings public disgrace to his parents, and more importantly, to God. That's what he's saying. You just let them have free reign. You've just taught them that they can do whatever they want without any sort of consequence. You're going to bring shame to your mother, he says. Parents need to set legitimate limits or boundaries and enforce them with a biblical spanking so that their children can learn wise character and conduct. Proverbs 29:17 again he says very clearly correct your son he will give you comfort he will also delight your soul. Joel James says well disciplined children are a joy to be around poorly disciplined children are not. MacArthur says in his Parenting for Life syllabus, setting the authority issue with the small child can prevent many problems later. For this reason, younger children will be spanked more. Likewise, as a child matures, a point should come when spanking is no longer necessary and other consequences become more effective. Parents who seek peace and rest by not disciplining their children are actually dooming themselves to the opposite. Let me say that again. Parents who seek peace and rest by not disciplining their children are actually dooming themselves to the opposite. What are worldly alternatives to biblical discipline? Bribery. If you come with mommy, I'll give you, you know, a candy. Emotional manipulation, making threats you have no intention of keeping. If you don't come with mommy, I'll leave you at the park all night. Or daddy won't like you if you don't do what I say. You know, basically just emotionally manipulating or threatening, trying to scare a child with threats that you don't plan on keeping or, uh, you know, uh, you're going to lose favor with your dad. Timeouts, removing the rod from the rod, instruction without teeth. Go sit in a timeout. That's not a replacement ultimately for the rod. Contracts, if you obey me, I'll do something in return. Children should obey simply because it's right, Ephesians 6.1, not as a tit-for-tat advantage. Extended anger, don't talk to me. I'm still angry at you for what you did this morning, and I will be until you start obeying me more. Punishments that punish the parent more than the child. You can't play outside for a week, <laughs> and now you're stuck in here for a week. <laughs> The summary is: Do not hide behind creative construction. Correct. Do not hide behind creative correction to avoid spanking your child. There's no need to manufacture creative alternatives to God's perfect, infinite, infallible plan revealed for disciplining children in His Word. Any questions at this point, Daniel? Um, 
yeah, I think I think at some point he's talking about some sort of physical device. I think the point of it is that it's physical correction. It's not just verbal correction. There, there's an actual device inflicting some sort of pain or punishment that's not going to go to the point of physical ab- abuse. But again, th- this is speaking of physical correction. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Stan. Yeah. Sees that hand. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, again, I think the point is uh, he's talking about a form of physical correction. I think there's wisdom and, you know, what those guys are talking about in terms of applying that and associating it with that neutral object and stuff like that. I don't think it's a hard and fast rule where, hey, you, you sin because you used your hand and, and meeting out discipline. The point is being faithful and, and administering physical discipline so that they know, again, you set down clear instructions, clear guidelines, clear restrictions. And when those are violated, they're associating violating God's word and God's standards, which are being mediated through the parent with pain and physical pain and punishment, because that's ultimately what they're going to experience from God for all eternity if they don't turn from their sin, look to Christ, 
trust in Christ and start to submit to him by the power of the Spirit. So again, the point is that you're meeting out some sort of physical punishment as a corrective to the child. Uh, certainly there's freedom, I think, in the object. Yeah, Stan. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, 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 in a second here. We're going to get to that point as to what, when you start doing it and what you do, what you discipline for. So I'll address that in a minute here. We're going to get to that, Robert. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing here, the, the point being that this word discipline, again, paideia, is full orb training. So again, you're giving instruction, you're giving teaching, you're giving guidelines, you're giving rules, and again, you're teaching that there's blessing and reward for obedience to those, and there's consequence and pain and punishment for disobedience. Part of that discipline, part of that correction 
is not just verbal reproof, but it is physical correction. Again, obviously starting, and I'm going to talk about this, starting young as a child. Probably you're not going to be doing that to teenagers. So at that point, you're going to be taking the keys away. You're going to be taking privileges away, stuff like that. But starting out young, we're talking about physical discipline where they associate from a very young age. There's pain and punishment that come with disobedience. So I wouldn't ever say that timeout replaces physical discipline. There may be places for other forms of doing some things and other punishments of meeting that out, but I wouldn't say we replace God's way of doing it. Physical correction is God's instruction, clear instruction to us on this. And, and just to, let me just read the passages so you can hear the preponderance of this. You can jot them down. Proverbs thirteen twenty four: He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 29, 18, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Again, the clear implication is that there's still hope for him while he's young. And so be faithful to discipline him both verbally and physically, because if you don't, you're essentially desiring and promoting his death, his ultimate ruin. Proverbs twenty two fifteen foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And again, foolishness in Proverbs is not immaturity. It's a moral choice. It's moral rebellion. The foolishness, the moral rebellion of a child's bound up in his heart and the rod of discipline will remove it from him. So regardless of what society says, God says it's effective. God says in my infinite wisdom, infinite and impeccable wisdom, this is the tool I've ordained to remove moral foolishness from the heart of that child. Proverbs 23, 13 to 14, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Obviously, he's talking about physical correction. You shall strike him with the rod and what? Rescue his soul from death, from Sheol. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom. Physical discipline and verbal correction give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Correct your son and he will comfort you. Proverbs 29, 17, he will also delight your soul. You can just see it's just a litany of that in the scripture. Frank. Uh, It's interesting because I had a guy on my job. He beat his daughter a couple months ago with a ruler Mm -hmm. and he ended up going to jail. Now, the interesting thing about that is he left a small well. Mm-hmm. So I think it's all about wisdom because even if you beat your child with your hand, that can leave a well. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's a very, when it deals with society and their rules, wisdom, definitely, you mentioned don't do it when you're angry. Yeah. So we have to be very careful. Definitely to follow God, obey God. Yeah. But understand that even a discipline spanking, it could land you in jail. Yeah. It really could. And I saw it, and I said, that my heart went out for the guy because he's a Christian. Yeah. And he's a good guy. And when he came to jail, now he's risking losing his job. And his daughter was out of control. Yeah. You know, and it's about, it's about that moment. Yeah. And something that simple in the hand or the mouth. So, I guess we're definitely going to have to trust God in some things. Yeah. And and obviously, I mean, yeah, there's wisdom, and we'll talk about that even now. So, let me just give you five proverbial principles for physical discipline. Five proverbial principles for discipline. 
First one is start early. As soon as there is willful rebellion, start disciplining. So maybe that's an answer to your question, James. As soon as there is willful rebellion, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death, Proverbs 19, 18. And so, you know, with Hannah, you know, she's probably 10 months old at this point. You know, we're instructing her all the time. We're teaching her, no, don't touch that. We're we're helping her understand that there are house rules. There are certain things she can and cannot do. She's under authority. She's not the authority. And she recognizes very clearly, I'll do this, Hannah. And and she stops. She looks at me. And she knows exactly what she can and cannot do. And so when I, when I, when she touches something, again, like, you know, we're not taking out a rod and beat, you know, she's 10 months old. Uh, we're swatting her hand to help her associate pain with disobedience. When we've given her a clear directive, when it's clear that she's understood and then there's willful rebellion at that point, there, there's consequences. It's not overbearing. I'm not doing it in anger. Again, I'm doing it in love and I'm doing it in a controlled manner. So obviously you're not going to do it very hard when you're dealing with a 10 month old, but you are doing it in the sense that you're associating disobedience with pain. When you hear mom and dad's voice, you obey that voice. And when you don't, there's consequences for that. Again, when it's willful rebellion, and we'll talk about that. We're not doing it for immature, and we'll we'll talk about what you should and shouldn't discipline for. But again, start early as soon as there's willful rebellion. Some parents worry about spanking their child in his or her first three or four years of life as if it might somehow warp or emotionally deform the child. God takes just the opposite view. He encourages parents not to wait until their son or daughter's sin habits are so ingrained and so deeply entrenched that there's no hope at that point. MacArthur writes, people are not a product of something their parents did to them. They're products of what their parents did not do to them. Let me say that again. People are not a product of something their parents did to them. They're products of what their parents did not do to them. Ted Tripp writes, when your child is old enough to resist your directives, he's old enough to be disciplined. You hear that? When your child's old enough to resist your directives, he's old enough to be disciplined. Hannah knows when she's given a directive and when she resists that, she's she's old enough to be disciplined. Again, the the punishment for her at 10 months is going to be different from Hosea at almost four years now. But they're both being disciplined. They're both being taught that there are rules, there are instructions, and there are consequences for violating, for disobeying, for willfully rebelling and disobeying those. Rebellion can be something as simple as an infant struggling against, um, you know, a nap change or stiffening his, uh, uh, you know, I mean, something as uh, simple as struggling against changing the diaper or stiffening his body when you want him to sit up on your lap. You know, you can, you can feel them rebelling even with their body. Objection, but a small child doesn't understand why he's being given a spanking. Response? All a very small child needs to understand is that a certain behavior or attitude hurts when he does it. Explanation as to why it's wrong can come later as the child grows, but all he needs to know during infancy is, for example, mommy, my angry screaming when they put me down for a nap displeases mommy and daddy. In fact, it hurts every time I do it. I think I'll stop doing it. Or touching, you know, the cords on an outlet or something, or you're, it's not acceptable. When you do that, you're going to get spanked. Don't touch those. <laughs> Number two, again, do not discipline in anger. Do not discipline in anger because now you're sinning. They sinned and now you're sinning in response to their sin. 
You're basically doing what the Bible says not to do. Don't repay evil with evil, but overcome evil with good, right? So the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You're getting angry at them is not going to produce righteousness in your life. God nowhere gives parents the right to throw a temper chant throw temper fits at their children, Ted Tripp says. If a child has done wrong, a child needs talking to, but no parent ought to talk to a child while that parent is unable to talk in a natural tone of voice and without carefully measured words. Comment, discipline is instruction, not revenge, therefore it should never be done in anger. If parents get angry when their child disobeys, they must be taught to stop, pray, regain control, and then give their child a legitimate biblical spanking. Biblical counselors need to remind parents that their children will sin and that they, the parents, don't need to react with shock, embarrassment, and anger when they do. Jay Adams writes, Parents certainly can take a lot of the unnecessary grief out of child raising when as a matter of course, rather than becoming falsely shocked over the fact, they expect their children to do wrong things at home, at school, and in public. There is then no necessity to subject children to unusual and inappropriate discipline or to the excessive anger that sometimes grows out of embarrassment. You're not saying you're, you're, you're not tolerating sinful behavior, but you're not expecting your child, who's totally depraved, to act like he's Christ, right? And so it, it, now when he does it publicly in front of that person, you know, where you, you want to be held in high reputation at the church and think that you're a godly parent, and all of a sudden your child does something, you know, out of anger because of your own sinful idolatries of wanting to be perceived a certain way with your church folks or, you know, perceived a certain way with so-and-so, you act out of anger and discipline as opposed to, you know what, I care about God's approval and I'm expecting my child to disobey at times. Not that I'm accepting it, but he's, he's not regenerate, so he's going to do that. And I just want to be faithful in doing what God's called me to do. I just want to be a faithful parent. I'm not going to have perfect children. I can't control my children. I can control what I do, though. So I want to be faithful in disciplining them, and I don't want to ever discipline them in anger, especially because of hard idolatries in my own life. MacArthur says, every problem is not major. The child's failure does not mean the end of the world. In fact, the child's failures and his accompanying conviction of sin and guilt are opportunities for teaching and counseling. These events allow you to stress his hopeless condition and need for salvation and the strength that comes through Christ alone. So view every opportunity to discipline your child as a teaching opportunity, as a gospel opportunity. Expect to visit problems again. Sin and bad habits with children, as with us, may reappear. So the point is, children usually learn bit by bit, not all at once. And they will need constant instruction. Instruction repeated many times over months and even years, including the physical aspect of instruction, each time they disobey. Stan. Such a manner that you're not angry. That's the first aspect of the 
and nothing's being learned by that child. I mean, I'm trying to search for the scripture in Proverbs talks about violence when you associate with a violent man, you burn his leaves. Yeah. So, you know, mom, uh, when you, I'm bringing it up because I saw how my dad disciplined me and my brother. He did it out of anger. Yeah. And I didn't want to approach him because we never had that relationship that could that would obscure that from developing a cultivated relationship because he was so angry on But I always went to Bobby because Bobby's bathroom and he talked to us and explained this is why you gotta be you. Yep. I think that that's what and then another component, another element is you have to say, well, this is an act that forgives you for your action. Yep. Okay? But this is what is expected. These are the expectations here in the household when you break those rules. This is what's going to happen. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's one of the things I had to learn trial and error, you know, coming up. Yeah. You know, I internalized my dad and then scripture renewing with my mind, but may not conform me wrong to the pattern of the world, renewing by your mind. And so I'm not taking my cues from the world. We'll talk about that here in a second. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so there's five minutes here. Let, let me just try to get through this material, and then we can ask questions after. So, yeah, I think you bring up a good point. Obviously, this is not just you, you know, venting your anger. The whole point of this is, is part of the training. The discipline, we said, is full orb training. It's physical discipline is one aspect of it. So you want to be teaching and instructing and shepherding your child's heart the whole time. Again, the goal isn't just to get them to conform externally and to obey you. It's to shepherd their heart with the truth biblically. So the, the third principle is this. Be consistent and persistent requiring first-time obedience. Let me say that again. Be consistent and persistent requiring first-time obedience. For discipline to be successful, it must be swift, fair, and certain. Again, Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, you know, the heart of the sons of men is fully given to do evil. You know, when, when the discipline or when the sentence is not executed quickly, the text says, the hearts of the sons of men are fully given to do evil. When you don't discipline, you're just going to really um, encourage your child's further disobedience because they're going to see that there's no consequences for disobeying. And so you need to be consistent and you need to be persistent requiring first-time obedience from the child. The Hebrew word diligently in Proverbs 13, 24, when he says, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. That, that word diligently there was related to the word for morning or dawn. 
Parents are to be eager up with the dawn to rightly discipline their children. Understand discipline is a rescue mission. Ted Tripp says you must not warn, you must not ask if they want to be spanked. If you do, you're training them to wait for the warning before they obey. Biblical discipline is consistent given the first time and every time a child is bad, not just sometimes. Exception public places where the parents might have to be or might be accused of child abuse. Consistency at other times will keep this exception from being a problem. Or you go find a bathroom or you wait till you get home and you instruct them, hey, you're going to get it at home. I'm not going to do it publicly, but you're going to get us, you know, a spanking when we get home. Biblical discipline is not only consistent, it's also persistent. Don't give up because spanking doesn't work in a few weeks or even a few months. As an adult, it sometimes takes you months or years to change a bad habit. Why would you expect anything different from your kids, especially if they're unregenerate? Jay Adams writes on persistence, mainly parents give up too quickly. They forget that when they try to establish a new pattern in their own lives, it sometimes takes a long time. Number four, verbal instruction should accompany every spanking. So this is kind of to Stanley's point. Verbal instruction should accompany every spanking. Again, Proverbs twenty nine fifteen: The rod and reproof gives wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. So it's not just the rod. It's also reproof. It's also instruction and teaching and correction. Ted Tripp says, if you focus exclusively on either the rod or communication, reproof, you will be like a ship with all the cargo loaded on one side. Communication and the rod are not standalone methods. They are designed to work together. One writer says you should never spank your child without telling him exactly what he has done wrong and what he can do to make it right. The verbal instruction of a spanking should include, one, what the child did wrong, two, how he can do the right thing the next time. What's, the, what's he expected to do? Three, his need for God's forgiveness, for violating God's law, and then a gracious confirmation of your love for him or her. When training is done properly, it should always end on a positive note. Qualifier, sometimes parents who have had contact with material that rightly emphasizes shepherding a child's heart might have unrealistic expectations about the discussions they will have with their children during the verbal correction aspect of a spanking. Mommy, why did, or mom, why did you hit your sister? I don't know. Mom exasperated. Well, what do you mean you don't know? Or what is the problem with Josh's response? Is Josh saying, I don't know? because he's just stubbornly refusing to talk, more than likely Josh is not expressing willful disobedience by not explaining his actions. He's simply being asked questions that he cannot answer due to his age and inexperience with discerning matters of his own heart. He doesn't fully and completely understand exactly why he hit his sister. He knows it was wrong because mom says it's wrong and God has given him a conscience, but he really doesn't understand why he has gone against his conscience and inflicted this painful blow on his precious little sister. To the point, small children often lack the intellectual development and self-reflection skills necessary to respond helpfully to heart-shepherding questions at such a young age. Certainly you want to teach them, but you need to temper your expectations. Three helpful questions to ask children before they receive a spanking. One, what were you feeling? Two, did your words or actions make the situation better? And three, in what other ways could you have acted or spoken? 
These questions teach a child the biblical put off, be renewed in your mind, put on pattern of biblical change, Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, and are usually within the intellectual skills of a child who's old enough to talk. Summary, work backwards from the behavior to his heart. Number five, finally, fifth proverbial instruction on discipline. Discipline attitudes, not just actions. Discipline attitudes, not just actions. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. So the goal is not merely to divest the child of ungodly actions, externally conforming to a certain standard. It's to get the moral foolishness out of his or her heart. Therefore, biblical discipline majors on attitudes as much or more than actions. Never let your child do the right thing with a wrong attitude. When you discipline attitudes, you'll find that sinful actions dry up too. MacArthur says, My own children will testify that they were disciplined far more for their attitudes than for their actions. And we discovered that when parents deal with wrong attitudes, actions practically take care of themselves. We found that by catching defiance at the point of attitude, we, will, we, will, we were able to avert most defiant behavior. A note regarding fathers, Ephesians 6, 4. Again, fathers bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Whenever he is present, dad should be the one primarily responsible for the discipline. Ted Tripp gives, recommends eight steps of a biblical spanking. Certainly these are not authoritative, but I think they are helpful principles. Listen to them and apply them as you find them helpful. Number one, take your child to a private place where he can be spoken with in privacy. Take your child to a private place where he can be spoken with in privacy. Number two, tell him specifically what he has done or failed to do. Tell him specifically what he has done or failed to have done. What was the sin of commission or what was the sin of omission? Three, secure an acknowledgement from the child of what he has done. In other words, you want him to verbally under, you want him to mentally understand and verbally acknowledge that yes, this is what I did and it was wrong. Four, remind him of the function of the spanking to restore him to the place in which God has promised blessing, to restore him to obedience and the place where God has uh, promised blessing. To help him understand that disobedience brings punishment and pain and it's not safe to disobey God. Five, tell the child how many spankings, how many swats he'll receive so that he knows beforehand. So it's not just done out of anger until I'm, you know, I've gotten all the anger out, then I stop finally, you know? Number six, remove his drawers so that the spanking is not lost on the padding of his pants. Number seven, after you've spanked, take the child up off your lap and hug him, telling him how much you love him and care for him. And that's why you do this. Help him understand that discipline is a form of you loving him and being concerned for his soul and his eternal well-being. Number eight, pray with him. Encourage him with the fact that Christ is given because we're people who sin. Explain the gospel and pray. Now note, there's no biblical instruction that says a spanking must be done exactly this way or exactly this way every time. However, there is much wisdom employing some or all of that systematic kind of approach like that. Other guidelines for biblical spankings, reasons that spankings don't work, lack of consistency. You're not consistent. 
lack of persistence, lack of righteousness. You discipline in anger, lack of effectiveness. The purpose of spanking is to inflict pain. If little Johnny is sporting an extra padded you know, diaper, running in circles while mommy's half-heartedly administering the rod, the spanking is going to be ineffective. For what should a child should be disciplined? Willful rebellion of all kinds, including sinful actions and sinful attitudes, even if masked by external obedience. Repeated forgetfulness that is really a form of passive rebellion. Say that again. Repeated forgetfulness that's really a form of passive rebellion for hearing problems. When a child continually uses the excuse, I didn't hear you. A child should not be disciplined for childishness or just immaturity. He's, he's young. He's immature. That's part of his development process. Not for being unable to do tasks that are beyond his abilities. Some parents are perfectionistic. They expect their children to act like adults, and then they discipline them when they can't perform certain tasks. Not for accidents that they didn't intend to do and can't control. Not before the parent has all the facts. Sometimes you spank them and realize they didn't even deserve a spanking. It was unjust. You, you just acted you know, impetuously before getting all the facts of the situation. A spanking should be an event. Life is stopped. You go to a specific place. Instruction is giving. The spanking is administered. Love is affirmed. And then life starts again. How hard? Contra abuse. You have no right to hit your child under any circumstance other than biblical discipline. MacArthur writes, don't spank in such a way that would injure the child. Corporal punishment should be moderate, reasonable, and age-appropriate. If your spanking leaves bruises or welts that are still visible the following day, you're striking the child too hard. Short, stinging strokes to the backside where the natural padding is most plentiful will not injure the child, but should be painful enough to make the consequences of disobedience sufficiently distasteful and unforgettable. To summarize, the spanking should be painful enough to discourage a repeat offense. A sharp, stinging blow whose pain dissipates quickly, not so hard that it leaves bruises, but hard enough that they don't want to do it again. On what part of the anatomy? There's one place in the human anatomy that can bear a stinging, painful blow without lasting injury, the gluteus maximus, the buttocks. Hitting in the face or anywhere else can cause significant and lasting damage and should be completely avoided. What if a child gets hysterical during a spanking? If discipline has not yielded a harvest of peace and righteousness, it's not finished. Proverbs 13.1 says this, A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And so give a second spanking to the child for refusing to receive correction with a proper attitude. Crying due to the sting of the spanking is perfectly fine and understandable. Anger, physical resistance, or hysterical screaming is not. What if the child continues to be hysterical? Well, the second or third spanking doesn't break the child's will and fit of anger. Stop spanking, put the child in his room, let him calm down. A spanking is instruction. A hysterical child is in no state of mind to receive that instruction. Once the child has calmed down, get the child, explain what you're doing, and give a final spanking to the calmed down, ready-to-receive instruction child. 
Note it's important that the child not think that he or she can escape spankings by becoming hysterical every time. That's a manipulation tactic on the child, and they need to understand you did wrong. There's consequences. That's fine if you cry, but to be hysterical and rebellious to try to get out of this is unacceptable. Conclusion, like salvation, parenting is grace. God has a habit of taking our feeble, faulty, floundering efforts as parents and making them more effective than they actually are. By while our obedience does not but while our obedience does not contribute to a good outcome we can't can but while our obedience does contribute to a good outcome we can't control how our children turn out no matter how good our parenting is for that we live by faith trusting God's sovereign and gracious goodness but the bottom line is we're responsible again not only to not exasperate or provoke our children to anger but to bring them up proactively and intentionally in the discipline of the Lord, full orb training, giving them teaching, giving them instruction, giving them guidelines, giving them rules, giving them restrictions, and then helping them understand that these are the blessings and rewards for obedience, and these are the consequences for disobedience. Pain and punishment will result. You're not only going to be reproved verbally, but you're also going to be reproved physically. Any questions or comments? I know I went a little long, but... Hopefully that's helpful and answer the questions. Robert. Uh, maybe we will touch that next time, but there's one of the things that I see many times is disagreement between parents and how to do that. Yeah. And that's very hard because sometimes the wife doesn't think this that way. Most of the time the wife Yeah, anytime you have divided parenting and divided authority, it's always going to be a challenge. Uh, If you remember, you can bring that question up and we can maybe address that next time just because we're kind of running out of time. So let me just close this in prayer and then we can chat afterwards. Father, again, we're thankful for this time uh, this morning. We're thankful for just the clarity of your word. There's so much confusion. There's so many ideas swirling around from secular society. There's so many ideas even swirling around the church today regarding our role and responsibility as parents, but we realize that you've made it very clear and very simple. You've given us two main commands here in Ephesians 6, negatively not to provoke our children to anger, but positively to proactively and intentionally bring them up, to raise them, to rear them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we want to be faithful. We realize that the principles authoritative, how we apply those principles will vary from Uh, parent to parent, from home to home, but the principles are non-negotiable. And we want to be faithful as parents to carrying those out, trusting you with the consequences of our obedience, that your way is always wisest and best, irrespective of what we think and irrespective of the immediate results that we're seeing. Help us to be faithful and persistent and consistent in obeying what you've called us to do and to trust you for the results Uh, and just the consequences of that. And so we do pray that you would give us great grace as fathers and as parents, and that you would be pleased to smile upon our efforts to bring our children to a saving knowledge of Christ and to grow in Christ-like holiness and usefulness to him, and to help us to encourage one another in this process, help us to look to you and to rest in the forgiveness Christ has provided for all the ways that we've perhaps failed as parents. And I pray that we would take the conviction for failure and not only trust Christ to forgive us, but to look to Christ to empower us in the future to be faithful. So strengthen us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.